welcome to the Acton Institute Events Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. For over half a century, America has been suffering from a growing but strangely overlooked crisis, a flight from work by men in the prime of life. Just before the COVID-19 crisis, almost 7 million men, 25 to 54, were neither working nor looking for work. Employment rates for prime-aged U.S. men mirrored those near the end of the Great Depression. In the wake of the COVID-19 shock, America's men without work problem has become even more acute. In this episode, we're bringing you a presentation that was delivered as part of the 2021 Acton Lecture Series, featuring Nicholas Eberstadt, as he outlines the dimensions of the problem, examines some of its causes, discusses its far-reaching implications, and speculates about possible solutions. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash events podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Events Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Dan Churchwell, and I serve as the Director of Program Outreach here at the Acton Institute. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Nicholas Eberstadt as our July Acton Lecture Speaker. Dr. Eberstadt holds the Henry Wendt Chair of Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., and for over four decades has published extensively on demographics, economic development, and international security, authoring hundreds of articles in professional and popular journals and several dozen books, including the book we're talking about today, Men Without Work, America's Invisible Crisis, which came out in 2016. He's been invited to offer expert testimony before Congress on a wide range of social, economic, and international topics. And in 2012, he was awarded the prestigious Bradley Prize. And he has also delivered the Irving Crystal Lecture in 2020. Mr. Eberstadt earned his PhD from Harvard University. Welcome, Dr. Eberstadt. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a delight to be with my Acton friends this afternoon. Thank you for this invitation. Uh, The topic of my lecture today, however, is anything but delightful. This is the collapse of work for men in modern America. This is not a new problem. It has been gathering for two generations. It hasn't been recognized as much as it should have been as it has been building, although maybe now we can pay some attention to it. Uh, I'd like to tell you that things are looking better as we recover from the COVID-19 crisis but I wouldn't be telling you the truth if I said that. This is a deep and far-reaching problem. And as concerned citizens, it's something that we all should know more about. Some strange things have been happening in the US economy over the past two decades. Ordinarily in a modern economy, There are three trends that tend to travel in tandem, but we are seeing ominous divergences between them. And we've been seeing these divergences accentuate for more than two decades now. The first is the trend in personal wealth in the United States. This is an absolutely extraordinary success story. Um, The American economy is a wealth-producing machine like nothing that has ever existed on our planet. And the amount of private wealth sloshing in our country at the moment is an absolute historical wonder. 
If we divided personal wealth by the number of citizens in our country, it would work out to over $400,000 per person. For a notional household of four, that's more than a million and a half dollars. Um, if we kept on trend, uh, history doesn't work in a linear fashion, we know. But if we kept on this trend to the year 2100, the average wealth for the American population would be almost $4 million per person. Well, if this were all the word of the story, we could all go to happy hour <laughs> and uh, lift the glass. But as I think you may be suspecting, there's more to it. And we see a somewhat more sobering situation when we look at the long-term trend in national output in real GDP production for our economy. And as we can see here, uh, the American economy is shifting gears and it's shifting down to a new and slower tempo. This was true before the Great Recession. You can kind of see this was true before the Great Recession. Um, but it has been painfully evident in the decade and more since we crawled out of the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. If we were only on our earlier uh, post-war path of economic progress, at the beginning, at the eve of the COVID crisis, uh, America would have over 20% more national income than it actually had. And even among friends, a 20% difference in income is a lot of money. So if our situation with wealth creation is fantastic and our situation with national income with economic uh, production is mediocre. The situation with job creation has been appalling since the turn of the new century. And you can see this here. Um, our work to population ratio, our work rate for people over the age of 20, has almost dropped through the floor. And for 10 long years after the Great Recession, we clawed back feebly, but not nearly to where we were in the year 2000. If work rates in America on the eve of the COVID crisis had been at the same levels that they were at the beginning of the century, we'd have had almost 8 million more jobs in America in 2019 than we actually have. So think of what a different country we would have had with 8 million more people with paid work in our society at that day. Uh, you can see that things have gotten a lot worse since the eruption of the COVID crisis. We'll talk about this a little later on. The work situation for women in America has been deteriorating for two decades. But the epicenter of the crisis of work in modern America has been among American men. And in particular, among American men of what is called a prime working age, the 25 to 54 year old group, that's the backbone of our economy, is also the critical age for persons who are forming and raising families. And if we take a look at what's happened with prime age male work, uh, we can see a crisis that has been half a century and more in the making. Uh, this is it. We'll see that uh, work rates for prime age American men 
didn't change that much in the early post-war period, the 40s and 50s and early 60s, they kind of bounced around with no particular trend. But since the mid-60s, the trend is unmistakable, progressive, and downward. And we can see that with each business cycle, a new normal was established, which is lower and worse than the one before, recovers a little bit, then ratchets down again with the next, uh, the next recession. And it's very little recovery in sight. The arrow is going downwards uh, unmistakably. We can, um, we can look at this a little bit more carefully if we flip it around and just think about the percentage of prime age American men who have no paid work, the workless, workless men in our post-war society. What you see here is an ominous and seemingly relentless increase in the proportion of prime age civilian non-institutionalized American men, those are terms of art and they'll be meaningful in a few moments, from about the mid 1960s to the present. Um, and if you care to do the averages by decade, you see that there has been an, a steady and almost relentless increase in the average monthly percentage of men with no paid work in the United States. And in the decade we just completed, in the 2010s, we were in a circumstance where almost one in six prime age guys had no paid work in any given month on average over that decade, almost one in six. Now, I can put that into historical perspective for you. You see what this means in a historical context. So what we see here is the work rates for American men, for prime age guys, or for a broader, uh, broader measure of uh, American working age men for the 20 to 64 group. For the year 2019, which was a boom year in the American economy, we were more or less, we we're almost at the top of a business cycle right before the COVID crisis. And in 2019, the work rates for prime American men were indistinguishable from the reported work rates for American men in 1940, from the 1940 census. Now, they were reporting about a period a little bit before, uh, before 1940. They were reporting about the tail end of the Great Depression. So you'll see here in this slide, um, our work rate for guys in 2019 is identical identical to the tail end of the Great Depression. It's Great Depression scale uh, worklessness rates for guys. And if you look at the 20 to 64s, the situation was actually worse in 2019 than it was in 1940 census, and much worse than in the 1930 census as well. Um, I've put in sources and notes into all of my slides so that any, uh, any members of the audience who wish to replicate my slide, any of these slides, have the sources and can do so for themselves. This is not fake news. This is not Nick's imaginary numbers. You can replicate these numbers yourself. That's the beginning of any serious argument about current events. So um, it's not fanciful or uh, purely rhetorical to say that we have a 
we had a close to depression scale work problem for American men on the eve of the COVID crisis. But before the war, there were really only two work statuses for working age men in the United States. You were either employed, you either had a job or you were looking for one. You were without a job and looking for one. That's the definition of unemployment. Um, in our post-war economy, we have a third uh, status, uh, neither working nor looking for work, not in labor force. And this status has absolutely transformed the nature of the employment situation in the United States. And I'm going to show you that with the next slide. What I'm showing you here is a blue line and an orange line. The orange line is the headcount since the uh, end of World War II, the early post-war period. The headcount of prime-age men who are, have no job but are looking for work. The blue line is neither working nor looking for work, out of the labor force. And you can see the exponential rise for more than half a century of the totals of guys who are neither working nor looking for work. Uh, this group is the group that not, now dominates the not paid labor force contingent in the male working age population. And in fact, in 2019, there were four times as many guys who were neither working nor looking for work as guys who were out of a job and looking for work, classically unemployed, definition of classical unemployment. So if you're only looking at the unemployment rate, you are missing the, not the whole story, but you're missing about 80% of the story of unworking men in modern America of prime working ages. Over time, the problem of exit from labor force, the flight from the workforce, has intensified year by year and cohort by cohort. And what you can see in this graphic here is that every new younger group in America has a lower likelihood of being in the labor force at any given age than the one before them. Younger brothers with a lower trajectory than older brothers, older brothers with a lower trajectory than their younger uncles, younger uncles lower than the fathers, fathers lower than the older uncles. Uh, this, is, this looks almost like the rings of a tree. It looks like something um, physical but there's no natural physical law to explain it. So this one is not my contribution to modern art. This isn't my attempt at a Mondrian. Uh, this shows America's circumstances internationally with respect to the flight from work for men in the post-war era. And it shows that the United States is winning a race that we shouldn't want to win. We are the dashed, uh, dark line that's almost at the bottom in this tableau. Our, uh, our collapse of labor force participation rates for prime age men has been uh, more distinct and uh, stunning than in countries like Japan, which have suffered a generation of lost economic growth, or uh, continental Europe, where they've been struggling under uh, enormous burdens of uh, welfare state, or a place like Greece, uh, need I say more, uh, we're way below Greece. We have to wonder why we have been winning this race against countries uh, we might have expected, might have less promising male uh, work participation than the United States. We'll come back to that. We know a little bit about the demography of the 
American non-working man, prime age guys who are neither working nor looking for work. This slide uh, looks at the situation in 2015 and the profiles haven't changed terribly much since then. So use that because it's got a round number at the end of it. Uh, with respect to ethnicity, African-Americans are way more likely to be in the pool of unworking men than the national average. Uh, but on the other hand, other persons of color are less likely than the national average. Asian-Americans are less likely to be in this uh, no pool than the national average. And Latino men are much less likely to be neither working nor looking for work. Uh, so the, the picture is mixed by ethnicity in the US. With respect to education, I think it's probably more or less what you'd guess. Uh, the less education one has, the more likely one is to be in this unworking pool. Uh, high school dropouts have the most uh, are the most overrepresented in the unworking pool. Uh, college grads and people with uh, graduate degrees way less likely. Marital status seems to matter. It actually seems to matter a lot. Um, married guys are way less likely than the national average to be in this pool. Guys who have never been married, way more likely to be in it. And then we've got what the Census Bureau inelegantly calls a nativity, and this is not a Christmas scene. Uh, this refers to whether or not you were born in the United States of America. And as you can see, uh, if you are foreign born, you're way less likely to be in the unworking pool, the neither working or looking for work pool. And that's true, by the way, of every ethnic group within uh, the foreign born uh, contingent. Uh, if you're native born, you're more likely than average to be neither working nor looking for work. Now, I've just described to you some uh, big probabilistic tendencies uh, within the United States, but not everybody is a slave to these uh, probability schedules. There is such a thing as volition and there is such a thing as human agency. And as you will see in a moment, um, agency matters a great deal. Remember how you just saw that African-Americans were overrepresented in the unworking pool. Um, if you look here, this, this slide comparing married black guys to never married white guys, you'll see that the African-Americans have higher workforce participation rates than the Anglos. In this, uh, in this situation. And this has been true for a generation. The more or less 10 point gap between blacks and whites in labor force participation is totally vitiated. It's actually uh, reversed a little bit by the marriage factor. With respect to education, there's more than 15 point gap overall between college grads and high school dropouts in the United States. But if you look at married high school dropouts and never married college grads, the gap is almost totally eliminated. The marriage factor almost totally eliminates the education factor here. Now, this is not because this ring is full of magic. Um, it's rather because it's a marker. It's a marker for certain attitudes and behaviors and motivations and outlooks. Outlooks and behaviors that change results for people in large numbers in the way that they interact with society and the economy. So why have we had this terrible developing men without work problem in the United States. Uh, the conventional answer in uh, policy land and uh, in the economics profession is that this is a consequence of structural economic change. Uh, big changes in the economy 
that are leading to a decline in demand for less skilled labor. And as far as that goes, that explanation is totally unobjectionable. There is worldwide tendencies to this effect, but it is not the whole story. And it may not even be most of the story as I am going to show you now. Exhibit A for the defense here is the uh, rate of NILF or out of labor force, prime age men uh, in the United States from 1965 uh, to the present. And as you'll see from this chart, it's almost a straight line up. Um, if this were a structural economic change phenomenon, primarily uh, driven by changes in demand, you'd see big swings with the recessions and changes in business cycles over time. They're not there. You'd see maybe big shocks when we had technological uh, disruptions, the internet or the introduction of this beautiful little device. They're not there. This is, uh, this is almost a social science straight line. It's gotten R squared of over uh, 96%. Uh, so where's the demand-driven shock? So here's exhibit B for the defense. These are labor force participation rates for high school dropout prime age guys, but for different groups, contingents within the high school dropout population. At the top, we've got the foreign born married guys. At the very gruesome bottom, we've got native born guys who've never been married. There's a, almost a 40 percentage point gap in labor force participation between these two groups of dropouts. So um, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of skeptical that K through 10 education in El Salvador is so much better than in the United States as to explain this in terms of skill differences. And if you can't explain it in terms of skill differences, you've got to come up with another demand-oriented solution, if that's your view as to what's gone on. Uh, the final, uh, final exhibit for the, uh, for the defense. Uh, I was trained in economics a long time ago, uh, shortly, after, uh, shortly after the Stone Age. But uh, back in those misty climes, they taught us that markets seek an equilibrium. And after a market shock, equilibrium tends to resume. Uh, we have a national labor force in the United States, and yet we have an extraordinary div uh, divergence of uh, NILF rates for prime age guys between our states. Uh, big divergences between adjacent states, by the way, like um, Maine and New Hampshire, or West Virginia and Maryland, Virginia. And the variation between states has progressively increased over time. Uh, if we didn't have U-Hauls, if we couldn't move, um, maybe that would explain it, but I think we still can. So um, this doesn't really comport terribly well with the demand-driven shock thesis. So. If we're not dealing with a demand-driven uh, phenomenon, what else could we be dealing with? Uh, two other things uh, regular economic uh, taxonomy would suggest. One is uh, supply-side problems, and the other would be institutional barriers. Um, what sort of supply-side problems could we have? Well, possibly men are withholding their services uh, from the labor market for some reason. What could be a reason? Well, let's look at the next slide. This slide shows us the proportion of prime age guys uh, by different uh, employment statuses who are receiving one or more benefit uh, from the uh, from the U.S. government, and in particular, disability benefits, 
benefits which one gets because one is unable to work or says one is unable to work qualifies for that. Um, I don't have the absolutely up-to-date figures. We're always looking in the rearview mirror for the, for the data from the U.S. government on this. Uh, but the most recent information that I have to present to you today shows that the proportion of guys in the NILF pool uh, who are um, obtaining one or more uh, disability benefits uh, has jumped substantially since the 1980s. And in these figures that I have here, more than half of the guys in who are neither working nor looking for work are obtaining at least one government disability benefit. Now, this is not to suggest that our disability programs are creating the uh, men without work problem, but it's incontestable that these uh, programs are financing the penurious existence that such men are subsisting on. And uh, it's even more dispiriting than that. Uh, life, uh, life on disability pensions is an enormous waste of human potential and of talent. And it also has other, I think, highly adverse implications for the recipients and for those that they love and their family members, their communities. Uh, and we can see some of that in this slide here, which is shows self-reported time use for people by different uh, employment statuses. Um, prime age guys, obviously, uh, who are in the NILF pool don't work. We know that. Uh, even though they have an enormous amount of time on their hands, uh, they uh, devote strangely little of it to helping others around their homes or to home chores. Um, they don't do much at all in uh, civil society. I don't show that here, but there's almost no worship or volunteering or charitable work. What they do is they watch screens. We don't know what they watch, but they report watching screens. And for guys who are neither employed nor in education and training, um, the self-reported time use in front of screens is about 2,000 hours a year, as if a full-time job. Um, this is not a way of living that's going to help you get back into civil society or the national economy. And the situation is even worse than that, I'm afraid. We all know about the opioid crisis, unfortunately. About half of the men who are neither working nor looking for work report that they use painkillers every day. And uh, in a most awful sort of unintended consequence, uh, U.S. government policy may have um, help to contribute to this opioid crisis. Um, we can see this from the, well, we can suspect this from the information here about um, government assistance in through our, um, through our low income healthcare program, Medicaid. Um, until very recently, if you went to a pill factory and found a pill doctor who would write you a script because you said you were in pain, uh, you would pay $3 out of pocket for 90 Oxycontin. And Uncle Sam, which is to say you and I, the taxpayers, would pay for the rest of this. Um, just exactly how uh, the opioid crisis for men without work has developed is something that we don't know all the answers to yet, but I'm afraid that some of the forensics here look truly tragic. Um, there's one other part of the puzzle that we need to look at, and this is institutional barriers. Um, there is a big institutional barrier that the U.S. government collects almost no information on. Uh, I'm showing it here to you in a, uh, in a study that independent uh, academic demographers have prepared. 
This is the crime and punishment phenomenon, more particularly the explosion of criminalized population in America in the post-war era. Um, the estimates I'm showing you here suggest that as of the year 2010, there were almost 20 million American men and women uh, with a felony in their background. Back of the envelope calculation suggests that number might be more like 25 million today. You'll recall that we have the mass incarceration problem in the U.S. with more than 2 million men and women, mainly men, obviously, behind bars. Well, do the arithmetic. Uh, 2 million behind bars, 25 million in all, more than well over 20 million Americans, mainly men, are in society, in civil society, uh, living with felony uh, convictions on their record. That's something like one in eight, maybe closer to one in seven working age men. Uh, we do not collect records on any of this, but this in statistically invisible problem also bears directly and immediately and inescapably on the circumstances that I've shown you already. America recovered in a remarkably effective way, by many regards, from the terrible COVID shock. Nobody in, almost nobody, in February of 2020 would have imagined that we were going to have a widely available vaccine, more than one widely available vaccine by November of uh, of that same year, yet we did. But you'll see that something strange happened, or rather didn't happen, after the, uh, after the rollout of our vaccines, of our COVID vaccines, uh, the work rate, work rate stalled in the United States. Why? I mean, at this point, uh, Two-thirds of the adult population has been vaccinated. What's, what's keeping people from work? Well, the answer isn't a lack of spending power. You'll see here that Americans actually have more money in their pockets during the COVID emergency than they ever had before. We're actually still above the long-term trend in the United States. Uh, the differential here, of course, is government transfers based upon public borrowing, all, all public debt, all transfers. And the transfers may have had unintended consequences on our recovery, our labor force. Up until the COVID crisis, the number of unemployment insurance beneficiaries it's always much lower than the total number of reported people who are unemployed, 50% you know, as a general rule. But things have changed uh, since the COVID emergency. Uh, we now have more beneficiaries of unemployment insurance than we have unemployed people. Uh, since, uh, since the COVID emergency, we've had somewhere between 150 and 200 beneficiaries for every 100 unemployed people. It's uh, the famous $600 a week, whether you want it or not. Uh, it's helicopter money. And some of this has had unintended consequences, I'm afraid. And you can see this from my final slide. Um, since the rollout of the uh, Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, the number of unfilled positions in the U.S. economy has leapt by over 2 million. Uh, we never have had so many unfilled positions in the United States, unfilled job slots as we have now. And they're not just for um, chemical engineers and computer coders and uh, hedge fund managers, millions of them are for people in the retail trade and for people in uh, hotel, uh, restaurant, uh, 
Also in construction, you have to have a strong back, but you don't need to have uh, advanced degrees for that. Now, this is our situation now. We'll, uh, worse in some ways than it's been for a long time. Huge uh, unfilled numbers of positions in the United States, even as the prime age male work rate approximates maybe 1939 levels. So here we are, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm afraid there's very little redeeming, um, uh, uplifting information in the tale I've just told you. The uh, men without work problem has led to slower growth in the United States, to bigger gaps in wealth and income within our society, probably to more welfare dependence, um, certainly to more public debt. It's putting more pressure on fragile families. Uh, it's slowing social mobility. It's having deleterious impacts on public participation in civil life, and it may even have some ugly political ramifications. Um, what you as informed men and women can do is keep this problem front and center in your attention. Because unless concerned citizens pay attention to this problem, I fear it is only going to get worse over time. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you for the opportunity to address you on this problem. And I'll be happy to take any questions or comments from the audience. Thank you, Dr. Eberstadt, for that uh, stimulating, if not depressing, uh, conversation. Um, we, we're really thankful that you can join us for some live Q&A. We have a lot of questions coming in over our platforms. Uh, please do, if you're watching and have a question, uh, email that to digital at acton.org or use the YouTube Live or Facebook Live platform to enter your questions, and we'll get to as many as possible. Um, what, what, the, the one question I wanted to start with is, what would you articulate the, the true main problem is? I mean, you did a great job. Thank you for the slide deck, right? 24 really good slides to, to demonstrate this issue. Uh, would you argue this is more, does this skew more economic or, or cultural? In other words, you know, someone might frame it, you know, what's the big deal? The, the economy's recovering, the stock market is expanding, this wealth, uh, there is wealth being created. Um, is, is this the best way to look, you know, is it cultural or more economic? What, what are your thoughts on that? Dan, thank you for asking that. Um, we've got a practical problem and we've got an ethical problem. And I think they're inseparable here. Um, the practical problem is that uh, despite our vast wealth, I don't think we can go on the way we are heading and enjoy all of the benefits of uh, continuing prosperity. Uh, much, much of America, too much of America, is being brought along in the train of our prosperity through the devices of public debt and, um, and personal debt. Um, either through, we through welfare or through personal unsustainable borrowing or both. And that, that I don't think can go on forever in a prosperous, successful society. The ethical problem is that um, we see men who should be the protectors and the defenders and the builders of uh, the contributors uh, to our society being detached from those roles in a way that I think is most unnatural and not good for the men. I mean, look at what is happening with the uh, opioid catastrophe today. Um, everybody, I think, needs to have a purpose. They need to be able to answer the question, who am I and what am I doing? And a lot of that has to do with doing things for doing things for a family, mm -hmm. providing service to your community through employment, being part of a community, being part of a faith community. Um, the anomie that we see here, uh, I think is a, it's more than a practical crisis. It's also an ethical crisis in our society. 
Yeah, we already have a, a great number of questions coming in from uh, the platforms. Um, one question is, is, is it possible that the lower numbers that you reference are simply males retiring early due to increased wealth or high school students and college students not working like they used to? Oh, a very good question. Um, I was looking mainly at the 25 to 54 group, the so-called prime working age group. Uh, termed that for obvious reasons. Um, if we look at the 55 plus group, the 55 plus group up until the COVID shock was really the only ray of sunshine in the long-term American employment picture. It's the 55 plus group where work rates were rising from the 1990s through the 2000s. 2010s. Um, so, uh, so the crisis that I outlined can't be explained really by early retirement unless one thinks that uh, uh, going to disability at 38 and waiting till you get your social security check at 62 is early retirement. I think that's a terrible waste of good potential. Yeah. It's, it's terrible for the people who are experiencing this. Um, there is a there's a good argument that with additional training, maybe people don't go into the workforce typically as early as they did in 1946. Uh, and Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, numbers count the workforce from 16 older, from 16 and beyond, even from before you finish high school or would finish high school. The groups that I were looking at, I uh, was looking at, were a little older, 25 to 54s. So um, I don't think that, I think we've got a pretty good argument that these are really our people who uh, are in the prime of life. Yeah. And part of being in the prime of life is uh, being economically active and flourishing. Another one in a similar vein is it, it seems that people are moving less often than now, particularly from places like depicted in J.D. Vance's book, Hillbilly Elegy, even though other places might provide more work opportunities. Why do you think this seems to be the case? It's an excellent question. It's an excellent question. And I can't give you uh, a categorical answer, but I can... Uh, I can share with you my hunches. Hunch number one, there is less churning in the American economy than there used to be. There's less uh, literal mobility and changing of jobs. There's less new startups uh, in relation to total number of businesses. And with less dynamism in business, uh, there may be less opportunity for finding work elsewhere. Although, as we saw, there are a lot of unfilled jobs in America. There's plenty of unfilled work in America. Second uh, hunch, with increased um, dependence on disability benefits and welfare benefits, um, there may be less incentive or more apprehension about moving. I mean, welfare benefits are not fully portable, if you follow my breath. They're state-administered, not federally administered for the most part. And uh, for that reason, they may provide unintentionally a disincentive for people to move in pursuit of opportunity. Then uh, there's an elephant also hiding in the room which is the 20 plus million ex-cons who are invisible in our society. Uh, the people who are ex-cons, not behind bars. I think it's probably hard to ask your uh, probation uh, officer in Georgia uh, for permission to go and see what Hawaii's like. So there's uh, all three of those, uh, all three of those factors I think are part of the answer. I don't know if that's all of the answer, but I think those are three different parts. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. And along with that, do you think 
some of the, um, you know, you can't go a day without reading some headline about, uh, auto, you know, some people call it artificial intelligence or machine learning and kind of some of the job disruption that's mm-hmm. either coming or, or in process now. <laughs> your, your slide deck, you, you did a good job of showing that largely it's people who are less educated, not married, unattached, you know, that, that have the highest rate of not yep. performing in this. Do, do you think that the, the, the future of work has a, is there an, an automation or a technology component, do you think, at this time in this uh, discussion? Well, there's, there's always been. There's, there's always been a mechanization, an automation, a structural transformation phenomenon in economies. I mean, uh, we displaced an enormous number of people from rural settings and from agriculture and the Industrial Revolution. And now we have you know, a series of uh, continuing revolutions underway. It's really hard for me to tell whether the machine learning AI um, spectrum is going to be qualitatively different from what we've gone through already. Um, whether it is or it's not, uh, the, um, the response, the, uh, the response that we should make is clear either way. We need to skill up. As I said in the uh, as I said in the presentation, college is not for everybody, but everybody must have a skill when they get out of school, something that they can learn, that they can support a family with. And by the way, once you learn one skill, it's way easier to learn other skills. It's like a muscle that you develop. For sure. And and this this question from the audience uh, riffs off this idea too. If um, Someone asked, if you could make one single policy change to address the problems you highlighted, what would that be? One single change. All right. And it's a policy change. So I can't fix the family in America. <laughs> and I can't, uh, I can't fix civil society in America. The policy lever that um, I think that, in my opinion, economist Raj Chetty was judicious in suggesting one policy would be paying good teachers well. He didn't say firing bad teachers, but let me add that to to the mix. Um, And in addition, um, getting some of the snobbery out of the educational establishment so that what we used to call vocational training Mm-hmm. is no longer uh, treated with such disdain. Uh, people who learn good skills, uh, can, uh, they can raise families, they can uh, have nice homes, they need to have the skill. And uh, between, between, a, you know, between a good HVAC training and a complete degree, uh, I think... You, you go you go with the training, uh, with the vocational training every time. Absolutely. I mean, we had a very wet uh, spurt of, of, of rain here through Michigan several weeks ago. And, uh, you know, people are, are, they can't find people to replace their sump pumps because there's just a, a dearth of, and those people are making really, really great wages, at least in our region. The plumbers no, are making really- I think all over the country. And, and they all just can't the find people to- but It's to, a skill. You- uh, if, if you're going to support yourself, you need to, you have to be willing to work. You have to have a skill to sell. And those two, uh, those two things, I think, can make, uh, make a radical difference in our circumstance today. Hmm. In uh, somebody, somebody else from the, the online audience asks, um, in your studies, have you found any parallel phenomenon in other Western countries hmm. of men leaving the workforce? Well, that weird little kind of like modern art slide that I showed um, indicates that pretty much everywhere there is a downward trend in in the OECD countries, in the affluent Western democracies. There's a downward trend, but it's more pronounced in the U.S. than almost anywhere else. Um, And we have to ask why. Now, there are some people who will say it's because the U.S. is less unionized and has less union bargaining than other places. 
Um, there are other arguments that we have deindustrialized. Um, maybe. I mean, those are those are legitimate questions to pursue. I'm not totally convinced by those. If you take a look at what's happened in the United States, for example, with respect to the proportion of workforce in industry and manufacturing, we're kind of similar to Canada and Australia. We're obviously culturally similar as well. We've got a much more pronounced and worrisome trend for uh, workforce participation for guys. I was reading recently um, that in in America, that 40% of households, uh, the main breadwinner is now female. The, the female, uh, the, the woman is bringing in, the, in households um, yep. the, the vast majority of the income. And, do you, th- and, and we, you read about college and there's vast, you know, more, more women are going to college or at least yep. graduating, graduating from college. Um, do, you, do you think, how do these correlate? Is it, are they just sure. filling the vacuum or um, is, is there a different correlation that we should be looking at? Well, um, I should have put in, if we'd had another uh, hour for the lecture, I could have put in slides about workforce participation for American women. And obviously, women have always been working. It's just that since the end of World War II, they got paid for it a little bit more. Um, in, the work, in workforce participation, there was a big upward trend from the end of the war until about the year 2000 for women. Um, but the overall national work rate and participation rate was also going up, which is to say that women weren't displacing men, really. They were augmenting. Since the year 2000, both the female and the male labor force participation rates have been kind of coming down. So it's, again, not as if women are displacing men. Both women and men are kind of suffering the way it looks to me. Um, in many of the households, I think, that you're referring to, Dan, uh, there are no guys. And so for Forrest, the uh, woman is going to be the breadwinner. Uh, and, um, and that's... Um, that's a difficult situation, uh, not just for the, for the woman involved, but for the kids. We've got a lot of, um, a lot of social science to talk about outcomes there. It's not optimal. Um, what, we, what we can say, I think, is that there's a, um, there's a crisis of male participation, not just in the workforce, but also in the family. And it's not unrelated. All of this, all of the uh, data that I have seen suggests that if you have a child under your roof and you are a guy, it doesn't matter if you're married or unmarried, just cohabiting, you are more likely to be in the workforce looking out, looking for putting bread on the table. And I don't think that that is an astonishing finding. Yeah. Somebody else from the audience asked a similar question, but it, um, how much of this problem is informed by young people delaying the start of doing usually adult things? In other words, moving out of their parents' house, getting married, having kids. Is there a correlation to the delay in that age group? Absolutely. That's an excellent question. Absolutely. And as our informed uh, questioner uh, probably knows, we've had this uh, we've had this sea change demographically with the uh, what some have called the failure to launch generation, people who are staying at home with their parents. It's um, uh, more like more likely now than in the past, and actually more likely to be in parents' homes than. Um, and starting families for the 25 to 34 year old uh, male group. Uh, disproportionately overrepresented is the, uh, the less educated, uh, less uh, skilled uh, contingent there. So, certainly that's a question. But even when you look at people in their late 30s and in their 40s and into their early 50s, you see the same troubling trends. And if you recall one of those slides I was showing you uh, earlier, the downward mobility slide uh, for men, um, we're seeing a pattern for each rising cohort, uh, at least mm-hmm. 
over the post-war period at any given age having lower likelihood of being in the workforce than the cohort immediately before it. So it's an ongoing trend that we shouldn't want to see continue. What was interesting or fascinating to me too is that um, if the if the the married trend line is isn't dropping as fast. Is that you know if they're married and at least graduate from high school, if not college, sure. that that it's precipitously less right of people not in labor force. If if some of those cultural things are are in place, was was that right? Sure. Now 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 the counter argument is that this is all circular. And if you aren't a good breadwinner, you're going to be less likely to be an attractive mate. And certainly it's true that for the huge contingent of people who have been uh, arrested and released from prison or who are felonized, uh, they, they don't seem to, they've got a lot of disadvantages going into the marriage market. So it's not, it's not a one directional problem, but it is a tangle of things tangle of knots we should wish to untie. Well, Dr. Eberstadt, we really do appreciate your time, um, the tremendous amount of work that's gone into your research. Please do pick up his book, Men Without Work, and continue to follow his ongoing scholarship at the American Enterprise Institute. Thank you again for joining us, Dr. Eberstadt. Thank you. It was a real pleasure for me, Dan. And for those of you joining us, thank you for joining us for July's Act and Lecture Series. We will be uh, promoting our August Lecture Series soon here. So please join us next month for the Act and Lecture Series and have a wonderful day.